Hello everyone and welcome to When Life Gives You Lemons, our wee podcast about tackling and coping with some of life's challenges, hosted by me, Jenny McIntyre, and founder of Let's, Michael Byrne. Hi everyone, my name's Michael Byrne and I'm here with Jenny McIntyre and I'm also joining today with Latham Green, the Chief Executive of the Mindful HR Centre, and it's a pleasure to have you both with me here today. How are you both? I'm very well, Michael. Um, thank you. Another week down in lockdown and still raring to go. Um, how are you, Latham? Fantastic today. Yeah, I'm um, in the coast of uh, south coast of uh, England and Forum, and I'm just kind of uh, yeah, I can see the sea. It's really blue today, and to be live, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. the weather's fantastic just now, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I mean, we've been very fortunate during this kind of six or seven weeks, haven't we, just in terms of having some sunshine and blue skies. So, you know, I'm trying to think, um, you know, the impact of the part of the, uh, the rain and uh, clouds have been around more frequently. So, yeah, just fortunate for those small things in life that uh, help get by. Yeah, Jenny and I have said that before. Uh, could you imagine that we had seven weeks of lockdown during winter where it was, you know, dark from, you know, three in the afternoon till, you know, 9 a.m. the next morning? It would be far more difficult for us to get through seven weeks of lockdown during that period of time than it is just now, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm absolutely. Um, so my life is you know, pretty straightforward. My care responsibilities are limited, you know, to um, whip it. And I can't, I can't imagine what it would be like with um, with him locked up because he likes his 20-minute uh, exercise, which is great. And of course, it's uh, encouraged me to get out of the house and get some fresh air and, and yeah, and just enjoy nature that's around me here. Live in a beautiful part of the world, so I really yeah, give thanks. I think that we, uh, the listeners won't know that, but we met uh, last uh, last November, Latham, and I think for me it was an incredible day, um, the first time we met, and it's an absolute pleasure for me personally to, to have you on the podcast today, and it's, before we start, I just want to thank you very much for joining us. Well, and likewise, you know, it was a, um, that, that was another place, wasn't it? Um, gosh, that beautiful coastline of Scotland, and um, uh it was a big event for me because it was um, really the first time that I'd been very open about um, you know, the difficulties that I'd experienced that kind of pushed me into a very dark place and um, to demonstrate, you know, the, the sense of um, opportunities out there because from that, you know, I'd met yourself and, you know, had great connection there and other people from that event who were very supportive when so um, from you know, a very nervy, dark, beautiful space. It's, uh, it's had great outcomes, and I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm really thankful for that. And thank you for the invite, both of you, for having me on today. No, Michael oh, speaks so very highly of you, so I was really looking forward to kind of connecting and being able to have this chat. So, as Michael says, thank you so much, um, Latham. Um, you are the chief exec of Mindful HR Centre. Um, would you mind sharing with us what the Mindful HR Centre actually does and how, how it kind of came about? Well, I, I, that sounds a little grand, doesn't it? In terms of, um, <laughs> you know, I can give myself any title I want. My, I'm a career public servant um, and I spent 30 years in predominantly local government you know, where um, the big things for me as an HR director were always, you know, you know not strategic stuff, 
uh, job titles, office accommodation, and car parking were things that dominated <laughs> my life. So now I've got the ability to give myself whatever job I want. So currently, Absolutely. I call myself the chief executive. <laughs> Be useful <laughs> material, or if I'm introduced, I'm giving a speech somewhere. And um, it came about um, mindfulness is very deliberate in there, you know, and um, I, I believe passionately in a mindful approach to life and um it's something i've uh, you know advocated for decades and you know, i'm a, a a lifelong meditator and i started meditating at 18 but mindfulness is a much broader subject than that so on my paid employment i decided that whatever time i had left with my to ensure that organizations appreciate there was an alternative to the way things predominantly or generally are, are managed in the workplace and um, advocating an approach of love, kindness, and compassion. The driver, my northern star, the kind of guide light. And it's quite interesting how that language has suddenly become much more commonplace since uh, coronavirus has kicked in. Uh, compassion seems to be quite ordinary, and yet even two months ago, that language, and it's language that I don't compromise on, um, that sometimes fall a bit flat because for many people, stuff like love, kind of compassion is kind of quite fluffy. You know, it can't be hard-edged stuff, and therefore can't be connected perhaps with my business, which is very serious, you know, certainly in the world of public sector. You know, many colleagues will be dealing with life and death stuff, you know, and therefore it is serious. But it doesn't mean to say it can't be with love, kindness, and compassion. But we with um, the NHS big time, you know, where they're all about caring and love and giving compassion and kindness to people who are sick and the most vulnerable. And yet do those leaders in the NHS itself provide that same level of care and compassion and love to the people who they're employing? And the sure. answer generally is, in my opinion, my experience is not very often. So that's what I'm about. That's what um, the Mindful HR Centre was set up to do. Kind of, you know, in a bigger sense, helping people who are stuck come unstuck, whether that be an individual or an organisation. And I also kind of believe that you need to be able to dream. You know, you need to have dreams and you need to be big and have something to, to aim for that encourages people to kind of dream big and embrace the journey it can be quite scary because it generally means I'm going to do something different from what I'm currently doing and I don't necessarily like let go of current stuckness even if they don't like it you know I kind of quite mm -hmm. feel quite comfortable um, with that um, because it's what I know and of course what our current environment has um, really encouraged people forced people you know sometimes pushed violently pushed them into the space of having to let go in order to respond really quickly to the emergency that's been around us so sure and it's kind of ironic when you put it like that that the people who like for example in the nhs who are, who are offering this kindness and love are they actually receiving that themselves and it's it's something that's quite poignant to think about at this time mm, yeah and certainly my you know, experience of um, working, as I said, predominantly in local government with a high proportion of, you know, care workers, social workers, and definitely what I experienced there was not an approach of love. You know, this whole concept of burnout, high levels of stress, you know, high caseloads, you know, 
real challenges to recruit people into that space and the value of keeping the different care workers. That is not, you know, my description of um, you know, really being love, kind and compassionate to those people. It doesn't mean to say you're not being realistic either in terms of what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's almost a, a bit of a dichotomy. I mean, it's called the care sector. And yet, you know, I think that those who are in the sector, actually in the front line providing the service, do care. Mm. Clearly they do care because it takes a really special type of person to provide that support to the nation. But I agree with you, Latham. I think that, you know, when I'm doing talks and talking to business as well, I actually ask them, you know, you have policies and procedures in place and that's generally what your fallback position is. But do you actually care about your staff? Because that, if that was your starting point, then that would change how you look at upon your staff rather than as performers or, you know, whatever they may be. It's actually taking that step towards actually caring about someone. Um, and obviously I speak a lot about mental health and suicide prevention and things like that. And what I've experienced in the past is that the fallback position for a lot of HR professionals, and it's not a criticism, and it's just the way that things have evolved over the years, is that we fall back on policies and procedures and I kind of simplify it and say, you know, say if a friend came and said to you, I'm struggling with my mental health, I'm having suicidal thoughts, you wouldn't think, I've got some procedures and guidelines on that. You would think, okay, let's sit down, let's have a wee chat. What can I do to help you? Uh, and it's fundamental and it's basic, but it, it shows that you care. Yeah, and it's not kind of, uh, you know, one of the phrases I, I use regularly is about being, you know, doing the obvious stuff. You know, what is obvious? Often in that space of doing the obvious thing that you've just described in that instance, the people in the workplace can quite easily forget, you know, because they think, well, I should be doing something else. And always referring to policy, practice, or procedure. You know, one of the matters that I have, and I failed abysmally in this place because in local government, you know, they have far too many policies, practices, and procedures. But I'd like to pull up and pop in a to them, a kind of, <laughs> kind, of, kind of, you know, ritual of liberation, you know, because in the world, yeah. in the world of, you know, um, legal employment law, there are very few policies that an organization needs in order to um, survive, to be legal. And local government, central government, many large organizations that add and stack up policy after policy, which just hit it the ability to be obvious and to be human. You know, because they'll just say, well, what does yeah. the policy say? Well, somebody's crying in front of you. Somebody needs some you know, compassion in front of you, but I don't touch them because the policy says all of this stuff of you know, equalities and just being careful about being sued or prosecuted. You know, and I just find that a whole concept of losing sight of what's obvious to be really frustrating. You know, and I... I wish I had had more success yeah. when I was working in business to change, but um, I had limited, I had a bit, but I had limited success. World of, of working, it's not that people can start from the premise of saying, I really want to be kind, compassionate, and loving to the person who I'm working with. It's not that they're coming in with a, a bad intent, it's just a conditioned way. This is how we mm -hmm. should be conducting ourselves if we are in business. Yeah, one of the challenges I might say is that, you know, having more would be genuinely interested in your colleagues and what they do. And I think everybody would say, well, yes, I want to do that. And that you're interested in what these people do both inside and outside of work, which they would say, yeah. And they're treating people with 
dignity and with fairness, you know, and emphasizing their meaning and purpose, you know, as they do whilst they're at work. And all of those things, people will say, yes, I agree with that. Well, that's all about mindful leadership, mindful practice, you know, which will in itself drive a better performance, a better experience. Also get that discretionary effort out of people if you show them just a little bit of humanity. And that's another word which we've heard a lot, haven't we, over the past uh, couple of months, more frequently in terms of that sense of humanity and um, just, you know, treating each other as, you know, human beings. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's like taking it off that piece of paper and making it real and personal because, mm. like, you know, both yourself and Michael have said, if it was a friend who came to you, you wouldn't then be raking through your filing cabinet looking for the policy on how to to handle the situation um and at the end of the day we are all just people yes you know we have um created this condition where you know there's too much fear about what might happen if i just act human you know as a human humanely yeah. and do the right thing yeah. and you know and not worry about the fact that it it probably is the right thing and that's what people want but you know therefore comes from this altered state, because that's the other thing that's going to happen to this time, you know, we will be forever altered, and I hope we're going to be forever altered in a better way of being more human with each other, which is, you know, really important. Yeah, I couldn't, and, yeah, I couldn't, agree. I couldn't agree more, uh, with them and everything you said there. I, I particularly like the, the wheelbarrow analogy. I've, I've been there many times myself, and I have a long career in uh, local government behind me as well and um, I think that it's all too easy for people to sometimes hide behind policy, procedure and bureaucracy and say well you know it's not my decision I'm just carrying out policy but we all have a decision about whether we care, whether we love and whether we want to be mindful of situations and actually see people for what they really are as, as Jenny just said you know it seemed to me in, in my experience of you know, 20 odd years in local government and then 10 in housing associations that the, the further up the bureaucracy ladder you got almost like the, the less humane you became because mm-hmm. you were so embroiled in policies and protecting the organisation that you actually forgot that you maybe had 40-odd staff who had 40-odd lives, who had 40-odd you know, families around you, um, and that you became so distant from that. And that was certainly my experience, and one that I regret as well. Actually. Well, it's an easy space to get to, I think, because on a one-to-one basis, when you see somebody sitting in front of you, it's probably easier, and you might get a much more um, consistent approach to people humanely, I would hope. Once you get into that space, aggregating into numbers, I felt, you know, often you you see leaders just losing that sense of these are people, you know, which is what you know, the challenge in terms of human resources. You know, they're actually people. So if you often, even if you change the language that we use to, these are people you're dealing with. People are complex, emotional creatures. They're also creatures who like, who require, who crave kind of, you know, social connection, you know, and connecting with others is at the heart of what makes us human. And therefore, you've got aware of that, just, you know, attuned to it if you want to get the best out of the people that you're working with and the better experience for, for you as a leader and trying to get people into that space. I'm saying generally in terms of leadership development, it's something that's missing in mm-hmm. terms of um, kind of any kind of 
challenge you when you look at who do we appoint into leadership roles, you know, this kind of whole concept of how do you operate, communicate, inspire, motivate, you know, still lightweight often in terms of making those choices compared to it's actually really effective. And, you know, you don't necessarily mm. see that. But, you know, therein um, is part of the, the future, I think, in terms of seeing how we kind of um, navigate our way through uh, whatever that future is for us ahead. So, I mean, I really like the what you said there about, you know, the, the altered reality and what it will be in the future, which, you know, I'm really looking forward to. But I'm interested a wee bit in, you know, you specialise in the mindful practices. Um, and I'm really interested in how did mindfulness become such an important part of your life? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, yeah it wasn't something that I kind of deliberately set out to do. And so it was, um, but it was very transformative. It was a lot transforming for me. That I got in it was 1984, and I'd just finished um, a Leeds uh, Leeds Polytechnic, and I was struggling to get work. And I I was eventually appointed to um, a job at a three-star rundown seaside resort hotel in Plymouth, stunning part of the world. It was really incredible, but inside it was it's, um, lacking investment. The Scottish Newcastle breweries were kind of trying to shift it on, I think, off their portfolio for whatever reason. And um, mm. I turned up there for my first day of work and um, all very nervous. And the manager who was in charge of those calls, um, Steve Whittle, said, um, I've organized for you a course in meditation because I believe in that. And we, we meditate regularly. And uh, everybody's encouraged and, um, you know, I enable so I'm a kind of teaser person, and you know I didn't want to be weird, and I don't want to do that while I'm doing work. So I just said, "Of course I will. I'll do anything that you want me to." So off I went into um, this course, and yeah, it was really quite transformative. Not just in the, you know, it's a great technique, and we practiced it daily in the hotel, but. What is actually a, a way of being in the hotel? So this three-star um, you know, hotel that needed of investment had a brilliant reputation locally. It was very successful, despite the fact that it, it didn't have much money spent on it. And as part of the mindfulness practice, it would be a team meeting at the end of each morning meditation that we did, 20 minutes, where we would commit to creating and making magic happen in the hotel. So all of the staff, whether you've meditated or not, had a standard, only after five or ten minutes maximum. And everybody would be encouraged mm -hmm. to be there. Loving who um, they worked for together, you know, looking after each other, mutual uh, support and friendship. Really committing to whoever walked through the door today, we want to make it the best possible experience they're going to have to through that door. We had a strong reputation for... Um, Weddings, we used to do it, seven weddings on a Saturday. And all these people are, but making the world of the bride and the groom, you know, it's their magic day, uh, the best possible memory they could have. And really thinking about your purpose for the shift that you were having. And at the end of each shift, so we used to meditate also at six o'clock, uh, we would come together and reflect in terms of, you know, what difference have we made today? Whether you were, you know, the reception is 
the manager, you know, whoever you were, it's all about working together collaboratively. And that was their ethos, their way of being. And that was my kind of introduction into mindfulness. And, um, really have, have kept that with me from that, uh, my career. That is like, absolutely incredible. I've never really quite heard a story like that in a, in a workplace, in a work environment. And they must have felt so, it's a, such an inclusive feeling um, and, and real a real sense of team, was it? It was a magical place, really quite incredible place to be, you know, and sometimes, you know, eventually at some point you become conditioned to and think, well, this just must be the way things are done in other places. And they've never been done like in any other place that I've worked for. So there was a huge sense of caring about people who you're working with. I mean, and remember, you know, these are not jobs at a high paid. So you know, the minimum sure. wage generally split shifts at that time. Um, you know, frontline um, difficult to recruit. So, you know, we had a, a waiting list of people who wanted to come locally to work with us because of the reputation that the hotel had as a place where you were looked after. You know, you're not looked after in terms of having lots of money given to you because you know, that wasn't what it was about. Yeah. But you would be made to feel worth worthy. You know, what you were doing, whether that be a dishwasher, a floor cleaner, a waiter, a waitress, you know, or um, an office worker, it all was very clear in terms of the purpose you brought. And it was great fun. It was a really fun place to be. You know, a happy place to be. Uh, although you had to work very hard while you were there. So it was, and all down to the, um, this, you know, manager, Steve Whittle, and, you know, what he believed in and brought that ethos. It was, certainly wasn't, you know, any kind of corporate ideology. And it was, you know, I'd never heard or come across phrases like, you know, organizational development, organizational It wasn't part of that ethos at all. But you would, you know, you, it was a very um, progressive way of, being, of of working. That's incredible. And yeah, and yeah, it's such a it's such a simple yeah. ethos, isn't yeah. it, uh, Lethem? If you have you, if you make your staff happy and you make the customer happy because they want to come in and have that fantastic mm. experience, but you're making your staff happy and valued intrinsically. And I think that we all know, perhaps now through life lessons, that intrinsic happiness is far more rewarding than extrinsic happiness or the car you drive or whatever it may be. That intrinsic happiness that you feel valued and loved and part of something, it's something that you yeah, know, and, I mean, I'm sure if I'd said to uh, the, you know, the team who were with me, you know, we're going to give you an extra 50 pounds an hour, would have been on any at that time. They would have said, great. But, you know, yeah. when I would call to say, I need, you know, I need this shift cover. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred people would do it. It could, you know, it might be they were doing other stuff, but we were heavily reliant on science in terms of our transient workforce, and they were always now the discretionary, above and beyond, you know, giving the extra bit. Uh, they would always do it really positively, you know. And I'm not saying that you know the organisation was without its problems because that would be, you know, that's painting the wrong picture. There was grace and there was reality attached to it as well. But in the world of work and getting, you know, things done, it was very um, easy in comparison to anything else that I've experienced. And I went from that space into the NA. 
and gosh, what a violent reaction. I, <laughs> so, to give you an example, my first shift in the NHS, and I was in catering, that was my bag. You know, I got a wedding planner to be responsible for uh, catering in the hospital. And we had conveyor belts. We put meals on, uh, you know, people would look at these cards. And I would imagine the patient, you know, would be really looking forward to whatever doctor they'd put on their menu cards. You know, I've ordered a sandwich, therefore I want a sandwich. And the NHS the hospital I worked in struggled to have any staff. So therefore they would get these agent staff would arrive shipped in at each shift. Um, many um, who were uh, foreign workers and couldn't uh, read or speak English very well. So they would just sh stick anything on the tray that came down the conveyor belt. And I was put onto the end. So I was sending back the trays that were wrong enough and putting a bit of parsley garnish on the adding value. Anyway, got to the end of the shift and there was five wards to plate up and the buzzer went to the shift and the staff walked away and left it. So the shift's over. You should, you know, you've, you've helped the, the produce. Off they went and, you know, left it. And that was just a a real kind of shot in the, the arm for me in terms of the difference you can get. Now, what was that difference? The difference was, Michael, that whole point about nobody made them feel as if, if, as if they mattered, what they did mattered, and how they sure. the, you know, the overall patient experience in the hospital. You know, I'm pleased to say that did turn around, you know, bring some of these uh, experiences in, but the very fact that you, and, you know, I'm not saying at all that these people would have back and when they looked at their behavior that's a you know that's an okay thing to do but it, it shows the difference of what it can make when you actually spend time making people feel good and you know they make it they do matter every day that they tend to work uh, absolutely and i think it's particularly in an environment where you're you are hospitalized and and you know I, i've I was hospitalised once um, with a suspected stroke and I dreaded it. I didn't want to be in hospital. I was probably the world's worst patient. And I can't always make the analogy of, you know, I was Jack Nicholson and one flew over a cuckoo's <laughs> nest and there's nothing wrong with me. It's all you guys. Um, but if I had seen it from the patient's experience and thought, you know, if I could, like you're saying, make them a nice sandwich, it may be the only thing that they're going to eat, but at least yeah. I've got some comfort from the fact that someone's made them what they've asked for, and trying to make it as pleasurable an experience in a difficult circumstance. And I think that makes no, a lot I mean, of difference. You know, it's hugely important and um, giving people that sense of pride in what they do, you know, and also you know, recognition of what mm -hmm. they're doing, regardless of what role there is. And as you are choosing to bring through the workplace, you know, which is another you know, mindful approach. We can't always choose the job that we do because of circumstances, but every yeah. single person who you know, steps over the threshold of work, choose the attitude they bring into that workplace. Now, that might sometimes get a bit of a gasp when I kind of, you know, make that statement, you know, delivering the speech or with them in the workplace, but you can, you know, because workplaces equally are not buttons. You're not forced to be there. And, you know, that's a choice you're making when you sort of your attitude that you bring when you get up is really important. You know, in the leadership roles, are you, you know, if you're choosing to be a leader, you're choosing to be a servant of the people you're leading, you know, not the other way around. Sure. And that's a, you know, a very different switch in terms of that psychology. 
you know, one of the classic differences between mindful leadership and, you know, your autocratic leaders. Um, it's much easier to know yeah. what you to do, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Letham, you, you <laughs> emphasise the importance of um, mindfulness, but how would you how would you explain exactly what it is, and and why do you feel it's it's so important in the workplace? Well, for me, mindfulness is um, the basic human ability to be present, you know, be alert at this moment in time, you know, wherever we happen to be, and aware of where we are and what's going on around us rather than spending time thinking about where I come from or where I'm going to or what somebody might be saying to me or what they haven't said to me. Being reactive to your situation, you know, it's a whole difference between affecting and effecting and not overwhelmed by what's going on around us, whether that be in work or out of work. This is very purposeful in how we choose to live our lives. And it's, you know, being more aware of yourself how is the world around me affecting me and how am I affecting it? And recognize that you've got a greater ability to influence your world than you often give credit for. It's always easier to blame somebody else than um, thinking, what can I do about this myself? But there are a few things that always kind of highlight to people about mindfulness. You know, mindfulness is not obscure or exotic. So it's familiar to us because it's what we already do you know it really is about if you're being alive and enjoying your life fully today it could be our final day we don't know what's in store for us you know it's about being morbid sure is am i living it to the best of my ability and it does take many different shapes goes by many different names but you know, it's it's definitely not obscure and it's not a special added thing we do you know we all have the ability to be present in what we do you don't need to change yourself. It's not about saying, you know, I now need to be a different journey or a different Michael. It's about, you know, being aware mm-hmm. of the solutions that we're looking for, you know, are something which we can kind of just allow to kind of come through from our natural being. And mindfulness has the potential to really transform um, the workplace, but it's, you know, it's also, in my opinion, a, you know, a huge social phenomenon because anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something a way of living and it's a way of being rather than you know a checklist a tick office um it's certainly evidence-based you know there's a lot of um, evidence for those people who might think it's a little bit kind of a, of a minority sport to actually demonstrate and you know, it's impact financially and also on performance you know for those who need that kind of evidence and it helps really big and you know you can see that from the I give you from the hotel of sparking conversation, you know, way beyond kind of because otherwise, you know, often you will just go into a workplace sometimes and it's just put have this, you know, because there's just so lackluster into affecting what sure. they're doing. I, yeah. And the way you kind of put it, it sounds so peaceful. And I suppose a part of that is what it is about is, is finding the inner peace within mm. yourself. Well, it's recognizing that we are enough, yeah, as people, as a person, as a human being, I am enough. I possess the, the skills and the abilities to have a brilliant life. And it's within my gifts to have a brilliant life. I choose to do, of course, is a different matter. And very simply, you know, if I pause for a second, take a breath, and think about what I'm doing before I do it, 
am I actually doing something from the from a good position? Is this going to make goodness? Sure. Rather than is it actually going to make no difference or you know, a bad impact for other people? And using the breath, which is you know, why meditation or mindful practice is one aspect of living mindfully or leading mindfully, but it's not in itself it. But that does help you just bring a calmness to the way you're thinking and gives you the opportunity to actually consider your behavior before you necessarily make a choice or do an action. And of course, it's in all of that stuff in terms of, you know, the stories, the narratives, the, the yada going on in our head, slowing that down, clarifying it, to think, and then you feel something, you know, and then you act. And this is why it's so connected with mental and emotional health and well-being. Sure. But that, that's just what I was going to say, Nathan. When I was going through my mental health breakdown just three years ago now, and I was, you know, I, I was lost big time. It was a, a really difficult time for me. But one of the, the many benefits of actually having the mental health breakdown was finding and discovering mindfulness. And through reflection, I realized that for 47 years, I'd always been either worrying about the past or, you know, because of the things that happened to me, or worried about the future. And then I, I cut out this thing I found on the internet, and it said, live in the moment. And I'd never lived in the moment. And one day I found myself on holiday with my friends in Spain, kind of annual trip, and I was continually worrying about, oh, but where are we going to go later? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And for the first time, it was like I heard the voice in my head saying, live in the moment, be here, be present, and be now. And that just changed everything for me. And so, yeah, now everyone else, I'll think about the future, but I won't worry about it. I'll make sure that I'm trying to be the best version of me just now or, or you know, in that moment in time. And I think once you practice it and once you realise that you don't have to act on your thoughts, yeah. my thoughts were detrimental and I acted in a different way with them. But actually, I don't need to believe them. I can stop, as you said, stop, pause, actually listen to the thought and pay it. You know, either say that I don't believe that thought, it's not true, it's not accurate. Here's actually what I choose to believe and choose to act. And it made the world of a difference to me. Yeah. And, it, and it I think the world, the, the world that we kind of um, lived in prior to lockdown, it was easy to get lost in that worry of what's happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future and and just really get lost in it all. Yeah. Um, it's the pace of living. It's frenetic. It's relentless. It's very um, conditioned, it's habitual, and, you know, very little thought would ever be given to, you know, as I described, stop and smell the flowers around you, you know, and yet, you know, check in with people now in terms of what are their conversations, you know, so when I ring my um, sisters or my mother, you know, for a checkup in terms of what's been going on, we talk about the garden, we talk about the flowers that are just starting to come through, we talk about, you know, the sounds that we can hear outside, those conversations, you know, would never be the first of our uh, telephone calls previously. Yeah. And I might speak to them once a fortnight. Therefore, you know, my my day would be stuff that I could talk talk about. Yeah, we speak daily. You know, it's a very different world. It doesn't mean to say that we speak forever, but we're talking about very different things and things which matter. Mm-hmm. You know, you're asking mm-hmm. people, what is it that matters? So I asked my mother that question. Just what is it that you're missing? during this um, time of lockdown. And her response was, you know, I miss having a, um, a coffee with my sister. They live next to each other. And I haven't had, you know, been able to go out for a coffee and sit with her and just talk with her and have a cup of coffee and a, a cup of tea, a slice of cake. You know. And it's 
that kind of you know, this this human connection, the physicality of being with people yeah. does you know it to a certain degree, but it's not the same as being physically connected with people. And you know, it's really interesting when you ask that question of others. You know, what is it that you've missed? Equally, you know, what is it that you've gained from it? Because you know, we've gained a lot from this equally. It's that whole ability to you know, really slow down. This, and of course, pushing this message out pre-coronavirus is obvious. And of course, often people don't like obvious because it's always straightforward. You know, they're like, yeah, <laughs> therefore complex means it's lots of stuff attached to it. You know, my world is simple. You know, it's I, I, it's a simple message, but it's very difficult to actually break the habitual routine of thinking and acting and operating, especially if that's what you're going to be rewarded on. I'm not rewarded on being human. I'm just rewarded on key performance indicators and money. Yeah. And it's a very, it's a very different, but yeah. absolutely, as I've said, it's within us all to be able to do it. And it does provide experience in life for, for me in living, attempting to live mindfully. You know, I wish I could do it every day all of the time, but, you know, equally I can get caught up in that negativity, mm-hmm. you know, that self-fulfilling prophecy of doom, quite easy to do, but I can make a choice and get back on. It's about being altered, but I'm doing a little bit more today than I did yesterday. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean to say I've got to be climbing Everest tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just going to try and when I find myself kind of going off these, then I'm going to take a breath and bring myself back on track and not beat myself up because I haven't been perfect. There's not that perfection because yeah. none of us are yeah. as human beings. If only, like yeah, we're not. Yeah. It kind of reminds I mean, me, Michael, like, of so... what we spoke about last week in the the small steps. With just if you can just be one percent better than you were yesterday, the the kind of progress mm. that you would make in a year is unbelievable. Yeah. It's phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, I I I, I love all this, and I, and I totally agree with them that it's not about being perfect it's not about beating yourself up if you haven't been perfect I think it's about looking at yourself and thinking do you know what I gave it a go I tried my best today there were some things I got wrong I got wrong or I could have done better but it's actually been self-aware enough to recognize that rather than blindly thinking oh, I did great I was brilliant I was this or the opposite of I was terrible at everything it's so looking back and thinking perhaps I could have done that a wee bit better what can I learn from that and next time that comes up I'll try and be that person and I suppose the, the question the, because there may be people who've never um, tried mindfulness and, and or maybe haven't heard of I knew that it was I know that it was new to me just only a few years ago so how how would you say to our listeners how, how would you learn mindfulness if this is the first time you've seen so, about it I said um, earlier it takes you know it, it takes many different forms for many different people so you know, my my articulation of it is um, you know, where do I want to, you know, where would I start? I would definitely start by being more aware of who I am and what I do. So, in, and uh, here is a very simple technique that you can all do. I call it four-step check-in. So ideally you will do this before you um, start your day ahead. Um, so before you've looked at your telephone, before you've switched on the news, before, you know, I try and do this before I've um, had to go out and let the dog outside. But, um, or you can do this in the shower or whatever. So it only takes a couple of minutes. So you would start by, I describe step one as nourishing your mind. 
So it just requires you to take a deep breath. So feeling the rise, so right down in the belly. As you breathe in, diaphragm comes out and your cage opens and breathe out. Breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth and take three to five deep breaths. You know, really experience the breath entering and exiting your body. And then ask yourself step two, what is the intention for the day? So, you know, setting your general intention by committing to being you know, productive or enjoying or I'm going to be kind, whatever it is that you've got depending on what you've got planned for your day ahead, really setting that intention very clearly using the rhythm of two or three breaths. And then thinking of that very clearly in terms of, um, you know, what the day ahead would hold for you. And, you know, in this time of lockdown, you know, that might be, I'm going to really try and not be so anxious about not doing as much as I should feel as I should be doing, you know, being less critical of myself. But just imagine yourself saying to yourself, day I will be kind to myself, that I'm going to be patient with others, whatever that is. Just have a very simple statement that you will have. And that will be in the two or three breaths. And then at lunchtime, chin with a, a round of breaths. Have you actually delivered what you set out to do? Being kind, patient, positive, you know, upbeat, whatever that might be. And also at um, the end of the day, you know, before you go into sleep, a couple of breaths before you kick off. So that is an example. Mindful technique. It's about really being aware. How have I lived my life today? Very simply. Which is, yeah. and, and it does sound simple and and obvious that, um, like you were saying before, people people kind of look for the com- complex. complexities yeah. and things, and in life, and that really is something that we we probably all forget about but something that is it's really quite simple yes. and, and obvious if, if you just actually kind of force yourself to yes. do it and you know whatever that would be in your day you know i get a telephone call or i know that i've got a meeting coming up or a skype call or you know i'm going to be positive i'm going to be inquisitive i'm going to be whatever that is and if you did that for you know it's usually that i'll give to people just to see the pattern of change that has happened. So I was talking this morning to somebody who's been um, on the mindfulness session. So any look, listeners can check in. So I, I do free mindfulness broadcast to, to aid, a meditation. A woman who has been um, participating now for the last um, six weeks, she's been doing it, and an email just to say thank you. And I had a call with her today just to say, well, have you found, found any benefit in terms of your day? And certainly from her, it's the first time she's ever experienced anything to do with mindfulness. And she said, I have recognized that certainly, you know, with my husband, because they're elderly people, I'm less touchy than I would have been. I can take a pause and reflect and breathe. And yesterday, um, the first time they had conversation, they started to, discuss with each other, you know, what they're thankful for the day they've experienced. And she said, you know, that conversation would never have been part of our debate. Now, it's not to revolutionize the world, but going back to your comment, if everybody lives their life in that way, just how different that itself would be. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, 
what you do to Latham is something I totally believe in and I really admire you for doing it and I know that it's been life-changing for me. I know you said that it wouldn't be a revolution, but I think in, you know, for certainly people who accept it and practice it, I think it is a revolution. It's certainly a revolution for me and it changed, yeah. it changed a lot of things in my life. Uh, yeah. I, think I mean, my you know, own story in terms of life-changed stuff, you know, I brought up in the 60s and 70s in Newcastle, the Pitt Village. Yeah. Low, complete un- unemployment. I mean, it was not. A, it was a black place to to live, really, in terms of was there any hope? And also, a gay person. You know, gosh, um, you know, how would I ever get out of this? How could I survive this? And you know, was there any hope? I mean, by the time I'd finished my school at eighteen, that was a complete psychological wreck of inadequacy. And here, you know, having found this mm-hmm. approach yeah. to rebuild you know the the human qualities that I I had gotten I blessed to live my life in a much more kind of fulfilling way about what I wasn't next that's the other thing about mindfulness it's really encouraging people to recognize what they have of them what they're not you know you are in who you are but you know for me this is a lifelong journey it's not sometimes it's not quick position you know it's but it's gradual, and if I remind myself more often than not that I am enough, and that I am, you know, a person who is loved and mm-hmm. loving and lovable, then that is. If, then if I don't do it at all, so you know, there's some things in life. Sure. The level that you're stuck on is really unpleasant, and you think, "How on earth am I ever going to get out of this?" You know, which I, I certainly remember being in that space. This is a way that will help. Many programs, you know, around in terms of you know mindfulness courses you can go on, um, but this really is a way of life. Uh, little and often, it's far better than a course and thinking, well, you know, what's going to happen to me? And um, I'll send the link up, and uh, you can put it on, you know, on your post. Yeah, definitely. That, so uh, you said there, there's a lot of different things. I'm really interested in what. Um, you guys do at the HR Mindful um, Centre. So what uh, kind of mindfulness interventions or training um, does your company offer individuals uh, and organisations that well, are listening to Well, if it's um, for a, a workplace intervention, you know, that would be looking at um, all of the ritual teams and symbols that an organisation has you know, in terms of how and what are they doing to make the experience, the, work, the employee experience, well, it can be, so that would be you know, any kind of policy, practice, procedure. Um, how can that be bettered? How can mm-hmm. it be improved? What's getting in the way? Because as I said, most of the, those policy, practice, procedures will be getting in the way of being innovative, creative, and productive. Um, so there could be some of that cons- uh, consultancy. Often there will be encouraging organizations mm-hmm. and teams to, to how do I approach um, the work that we do with a growth mindset? for what is possible, how can something be, moving into that dream space. And again, and um, when I ask the question, you know, what's your mm-hmm. purpose? Why are you here? What would happen if you weren't yeah. here? And that is a question that isn't always answered as readily as it could be or needs to be if you want to get the most out of what yeah. you do. So there might be some of that work that I would be doing. Um, how do we... Um, enhance our personal confidence and our team confidence. So 
So there's all the techniques around that. Mm-hmm. I did a lot with um, mediation in terms of you know, unblocking workplace conflict um, through interventions that I can do there. I do a lot of um, one-on-one coaching, whether that be executive coaching or outside of work, you know, kind of life coaching using mindfulness mm-hmm. approach. So encouraging people to access and tap into their dreams for life. You know, we get one shot at life. And, you know, am I making the most of it? How can I make the most of me? Other than saying, well, you know, it's everybody else around me. So really encouraging people to release and let go of um, the inhibitions. And just that it's never too late to engage with your dreams, dream big, and really enjoy the adventure and the journey that that will take you on because you don't quite know what that will be but it's going to be great you know so it's such a fantastic outlook you've got on life Latham and um, your story is absolutely incredible isn't it Michael it's phenomenal as I said uh, one of the biggest joys in my life over the past years has been the pleasure of uh, meeting Latham and sharing uh, a morning with him when we met last November and uh, you know, to to draw inspiration from Latham for me is just uh, it's a real pleasure. And it's and very kind of you to um, be both to say that you're very humbled and touched. And um, it's yeah, it can help in any way with people who are listening, and it's a great thing. But it also just to put a bit of context to it, you know, my uh, current video that will be released tomorrow is uh, really found, and it's a. Um, Disco version of head, shoulders, knees, and toes, knees and toes. Just to go, just to put life <laughs> in perspective. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, Liam, I've loved your video. Uh, I've loved your videos over the past few weeks. They've been potentially the highlight you know, of the week I've had. It's been fantastic. If you could send us over the links for them all, oh. we will definitely share them when we put when we put this episode out. That would be absolutely. Brilliant, and and like you say, it is just putting yeah. life into perspective sometimes. You know, all of my profound writing that I spent hours and hours pontificating over. You know, and I might get a few hits when I post them. And uh, here we go with um, let's do the time warp or the birdie song, and they've had <laughs> thousands and thousands <laughs> of views, and you know, hundreds of comments from people. It's yeah, so it's the obvious stuff, isn't it? Again, it goes back. And, and, Oh, absolutely. And, 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 not overcomplicating it. You're keeping it birdie song. You know, life. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm going to have head, shoulders, knees, and toes in, the, in my head. Yeah. And I have a, I have a, uh, I'm doing a presentation uh, in about an hour from now, and I don't know how I'm going to get head, shoulders, and toes <laughs> in But can I just say, Nathan, it's been an absolute pleasure um to listen to you and uh, and i know i speak for jenny and jenny the same but um we are really grateful that um, you've joined us today for the podcast uh, my pleasure so you all love and everyone listening you know just um yeah, embrace that dream and go for it perfect thank you so much Lisa. and um to all our listeners thank you again for listening and we'll we'll catch up with you next week <laughs>